Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 17th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. More JFK assassination files are released. Twitter suspends the accounts of at least five journalists. Russia launches renewed missile attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Japan announces plans to build a more powerful military. The U.S. Senate passes a record $858 billion defense act. The U.K. launches a probe into claims its troops killed Afghan civilians. Biden calls for the African Union to join the G20. A California county considers secession to become a new U.S. state. Denmark wants to scrap a public holiday to boost its defense budget. And a new study finds Parkinson's is more prevalent than earlier estimates. In our top story, new developments coming from the JFK assassination as new files have been released. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, CBS, The White House, Al Jazeera, and Breitbart. The U.S. National Archives and Records Administration on Thursday released over 13,000 documents related to the 1963 assassination of former U.S. President John F. Kennedy. However, thousands more remain redacted or completely withheld, ostensibly for national security or foreign relations reasons. The release came shortly after President Joe Biden signed an executive order authorizing their disclosure. In its text, Biden cited his administration's commitment to transparency and desire to give Americans a better understanding of the government's investigation of the assassination. However, the executive order added that the National Archives has, quote, identified a limited number of records not yet ready for public disclosure, citing consultation with relevant consulting agencies to ensure the continued postponement of redactions was appropriate. The National Archives said that 515 documents remain withheld in full, while another 2,545 are partly censored, with Biden saying they'll be further reviewed until May 1, 2023, and any, quote, that agencies do not recommend for continued postponement would be released by June 30th of that year. Many of the unsealed documents were CIA records on assassin Lee Harvey Oswald's communications with the Soviet Union. The agency responded, stating that released records do not, quote, change the historical record and has no bearing on the assassination or the investigation itself. The document release comes after Congress in 1992 passed the President John F. Kennedy Assassinations Records Collection Act, mandating all documents be released by October 2017, except those deemed to pose a national security risk while then-President Donald Trump released thousands of documents on a rolling basis. Thousands more remained concealed. All right, not often we get late-breaking news on the Kennedy assassination in 2022, but we have some narrative spins on this story in addition to those facts. Pro-establishment narrative comes from The Guardian. While the release of new documents is undoubtedly of interest to historians, it's unexpected that they'll contain new bombshells, That will challenge what the JFK Commission concluded years ago, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in killing the president. Scott, thank you for that. There is an establishment critical narrative coming from NBC News. By continuing to redact and hold back thousands of documents, intelligence agencies and the Biden administration are failing to abide by the letter of the law. 
that all of the documents are released without further censorship. Now, almost 60 years after Kennedy's death, there's no reason for the continued secrecy. And Fox News provides a cynical narrative. Whether you're willing to entertain the idea of the CIA's involvement or not, there are certainly parts of this story that deserve more scrutiny, particularly regarding the relationship between the agency, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the man who killed Oswald, Jack Ruby. Leaders' reluctance to fully disclose the information only feeds Americans' distrust of their government and hints that there's more to the story than what has been shared. I'm just going to hang out here by the grassy knoll until everything is released, Scott. I know. Jeez. It is interesting. I, I don't want to favor any one of these narratives, but I'm kind of one of the people I feel like the more documents that they release until they release them all, it just makes people want to see the ones they didn't release more. Absolutely. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Elon Musk suspends the Twitter accounts of prominent journalists. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, PBS NewsHour, Daily Mail and Al Jazeera. Several prominent journalists who recently wrote about Twitter owner Elon Musk had their Twitter accounts suspended on Thursday allegedly for breaking a rule against the publishing of personal information called doxing. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, New York Times tech reporter Ryan Mack, The Washington Post's Drew Harwell, former MSNBC host Keith Olbermann, and former Vox writer Aaron Rupar were among those banned. The suspensions come one day after Musk banned an account that was tracking flights he made on a private jet. At the same time, Twitter adopted a policy forbidding the sharing of another person's current geographic location without consent. Many of the banned journalists had been reporting on the new policy. Musk classified tweets from the at Elon Jet Twitter account and any reporting of individuals' real-time location as doxing. He was motivated to take action, he said via tweet, by an incident allegedly featuring a stalker jumping on the hood of a car carrying his son. In a tweet, Musk said, Criticizing me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. He described the posting of his whereabouts as giving, basically, assassination coordinates. Most of the media outlets employing the banned journalists put out statements opposing Twitter's actions, while they've also been condemned by officials from France, Germany, the UK, the UN, and the EU. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin with Narrative A coming from Alternet. This is an attack on press freedom. Ever since he took over Twitter this fall, Musk has practiced the philosophy of free speech for me, but not free for thee. He started banning critical comedians, and now he's gone on a banning spree against journalists who cover him. He always has some excuse about rule breaking, but it's more likely he just doesn't mean what he's often said about unfettered free speech. And Narrative B comes from Infowars. These aren't journalists Musk is banning, they're activists disguising themselves as members of the media, and their so-called reporting has put Musk and his family at risk of physical attack. In the past, these same people called for banning the accounts of right-wing individuals for far less egregious actions, so they should be able to understand why Musk is taking this action. I've just added a new word to my vocabulary. I'm going to start using doxing as mm, much as yeah, possible. <laughs> well, don't do it on Twitter. That's, no, that's that not at all. Know. No, you'll be up there in no time. We continue our coverage of the Ukraine conflict as we look at day 296 as Russia launches new missile attacks on energy infrastructure. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, Ukraine Forum, TASS, and Guardian. Russia launched over 70 missiles into Ukraine on Friday, Ukrainian officials said, once again striking energy infrastructure across the country. Attacks were recorded in Kyiv, its surrounding oblast, as well as the regions of Kharkiv, Dnipropetrovsk, Poltava, and Zhodomir. The attacks left the whole of the capital without power or electricity, with outages also reported in the city of Poltava and the regions of Kharkiv, Kirovrad, Donetsk, and Dnipropetrovsk. According to Yaroslav Yanushevich, the head of Kherson, Thursday attacks left four people dead and nine more injured. In Donetsk, still the scene of the heaviest fighting, Ukrainian officials said seven civilians were killed and seven more were injured in Russian attacks over the last 24 hours. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, said two civilians were killed and 13 were injured in Ukrainian attacks on territory it controls over the same time period. Officials from the Luhansk People's Republic, or LPR, meanwhile, reported that eight civilians were killed and 23 were injured in the settlement of Landratovka. Elsewhere, Poland's police chief, Jaroslaw Simzik, was taken to a hospital with minor injuries after a gift he received from a senior Ukrainian official exploded, according to Poland's interior ministry. A civilian employee at the National Police Headquarters was also injured. Quote, the Polish side has asked the Ukrainian side to provide an explanation, the interior ministry said. Uh, as the conflict in Ukraine heats up, we have some narrative spins, starting with the pro-establishment narrative from CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure, unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians, amounts to war crimes. This continuing Russian barbarity must be confronted. And we have a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and the thought that they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. The one on this story says there is a 1% chance that NATO will declare a no-fly zone anywhere in Ukraine before the year 2023. The pro-Russian narrative stated that the attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. I'm thinking they need to stop the yeah, flow I'm, of the vodka. Well, luckily, uh, Boris Yeltsin's no longer in office. <laughs> and staying in the military-industrial complex, Japan unveils a $320 billion military development. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, MSN, BBC News, Yahoo, Al Jazeera, and Wall Street Journal. On Friday, Japan announced a five-year, $320 billion package to build up its military, the largest of its kind since World War II and a significant departure from its pacifist stance. The new plan will reportedly include an increased defense budget of 2% of GDP by 2027, up from about the current 1%. Based on the current GDP, annual spending could reach approximately $80 billion, ranking Japan third out of the top three countries behind the U.S. and China. Under the plan, Tokyo will reportedly purchase U.S. long-range missiles with the capacity to eliminate potential adversary launch sites in the event of an attack. It also plans to bolster its cyber warfare capabilities. The expansion was reportedly prompted by the war in Ukraine and North Korea's escalating missile launches, with particular attention to China's rapid military buildup, which Japan described as an unprecedented strategic challenge. Meanwhile, China responded by encouraging Tokyo to reflect on its policies, 
with a foreign ministry spokesperson accusing the island country of discrediting China. The U.S. has encouraged Japan for years to increase its military spending. After World War II, Japan and the U.S. signed a security treaty guaranteeing that the U.S. would come to Japan's aid if the country was attacked. As we look at the three spins that have emerged, an anti-China narrative is the first one, coming from the Wall Street Journal. Japan, which holds the largest permanent contingent of U.S. forces overseas, can no longer solely rely on U.S. support, a fact that this latest plan acknowledges. The new strategy fortifies the U.S. and Japan's vigor and will reshape their ability to promote peace and protect the Indo-Pacific region as China attempts to exert its influence. And there's a pro-China narrative brought to us by Global Times. Japan is groundlessly discrediting China. By adopting this new policy, Japan is putting itself on a more offensive footing and deviating from its commitment to China-Japan relations and the common understanding between the two countries. But hyping up the so-called China threat to find an excuse for its military buildup is doomed to fail. And our friends at Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say that there's a 62% chance that Japan's self-defense forces will have tested a Tomahawk missile by mid-2027. I'm just a guy talking into an expensive microphone, but doesn't it seem like the temperature is just kind of turning up on the globe a little bit? And I don't mean global warming, like the everyone's kind of tuning up their militaries and things like that. I definitely sense the tension. And we continue the theme of national defense as the U.S. Senate passes a record $858 billion defense budget. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Politico, CNN, Fox News, and Military Times. The U.S. Senate on Thursday authorized a record $858 billion in annual defense spending. That's $45 billion more than President Joe Biden proposed. This comes after the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, an annual must-pass bill that sets policy for the Pentagon, was passed by the House last week. Biden is expected to now sign it. The NDAA provides $817 billion to the Pentagon, while $30 billion goes toward nuclear weapons development overseen by the Department of Energy. This is the second consecutive year Congress has exceeded Biden's military spending plans by tens of billions of dollars. Aid to Ukraine increased to $800 million for the fiscal year 2023, a $500 million increase from last year. A defense modernization program for Taiwan to deter Chinese action would also be established. The COVID vaccine mandate for military members is also ended by this bill. However, members who were discharged or had their benefits cut for refusing the vaccine would not be reinstated. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Biden doesn't approve of repealing the vaccine mandate. Republicans consider the repeal a victory. Troops will receive their highest pay raise in two decades, as military members will receive a 4.6% basic pay raise, up from 2.7% in 2022. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Slate gives us an establishment-critical narrative. Beyond the headline-grabbing, non-spending provisions in this bill is a bloated budget that doesn't even take into account inflation or what it will cost to replace weapons the U.S. has given to Ukraine. The increased spending is just going to buy the military more weapons, and not even ones geared toward modern-day challenges and threats. This bill deserves more scrutiny from politicians, the press, and citizens. A pro-establishment narrative for this story is coming from New York Times. 
For the U.S. to fulfill its obligations to defend its allies across the globe and defend itself, it needs even more military expenditures. Military spending as part of the gross domestic product is actually less than it has averaged over the past 50 years. All branches are short of personnel, ships are poorly maintained, and it's doubtful the weapons industry would be able to meet the country's needs in case of a conflict. There must be a better commitment to national defense. Yeah, I guess if you thought that that uh, 85 uh, million that Japan was spending is a lot, I guess the U.S. just says, uh, hold my beer, right? Exactly. And another military story is the U.K. will investigate if elite forces killed Afghan civilians. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Guardian, ITV, BBC News, The Telegraph, and Reuters. The UK's defense ministry announced Thursday that a statutory inquiry headed by senior judge Charles Haddon Cave will start early next year into allegations of unlawful killings by the elite Special Air Service, or SAS Corps, in Afghanistan from mid-2010 to mid-2013. Speaking to the House of Commons, Minister for Defense People Andrew Murison stated the ministry would concede to long-standing demands for an independent statutory inquiry into reports that British troops killed Afghan civilians in cold blood. He added that the probe will also focus on the adequacy of subsequent investigations by the Ministry of Defense into allegations of wrongdoing, including murder, citing that two ongoing judicial review cases have informed this decision. This comes a day after the BBC published a follow-up investigation into a 2012 raid. In that incident, British special forces reportedly killed four people, including a woman, and shot two infants. The Royal Military Police, who wasn't informed at the time, is currently reviewing the incident after the BBC's findings. In July, BBC Television's Panorama program reported that the alleged SAS soldiers had killed 54 people in suspicious circumstances during night raids related to deliberate detention operations in Afghanistan. Scott, thank you for that story. As we look at the spins, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from the Canary. The announcement of this inquiry may give some hope to the mourning families of those killed by the SAS unit, but it is very unlikely that these war criminals will be held accountable. The Controversial Overseas Operation Act virtually bars war crimes prosecution of British troops, especially for any allegations over five years old. This is a failure of the British military and institutions. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from Daily Mail. This probe reinforces that UK's armed forces must comply with the highest possible operational standards. However, the bar for prosecutions must be very high so as not to inflict a severe blow on the morale of British veterans. This probe could very well join several others regarding allegations of misconduct, each failing to find enough evidence for prosecutions. In our next story, President Biden calls for the African Union to join the G20. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, The White House, Washington Post, and the U.S. State Department. At the U.S.-Africa Summit in Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden on Thursday announced support for the African Union, or the AU, which represents one of the world's fastest-growing regions, to become a permanent member of the G20 group of major economies. Noting that African leadership and innovation are critical in tackling some of the world's biggest problems, Biden also advocated Washington's support for reforming the U.N. Security Council to allow for an African representative. Biden also pledged $2 billion to strengthen food security and $165 million 
to support peaceful and credible elections in Africa in 2023. Earlier this week, the U.S. president had outlined Washington's plans for spending $55 billion over the next three years on government programs in the continent. On Wednesday, Biden met with the presidents of the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, Gabon, Liberia, Madagascar, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone to discuss their country's 2023 elections, reportedly to promote democracy and good governance in Africa. During the first U.S.-Africa summit since 2014, Biden also announced his intention to visit several African countries next year during his first presidential visit to the continent. Several cabinet members, Vice President Kamala Harris and First Lady Jill Biden, are also set to visit Africa, Biden said on Thursday. The U.S. president hosted a three-day U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, which kicked off Tuesday with delegations from 49 African countries and the AU. The major gathering was intended to underscore Washington's view that, quote, Africa will shape the future as a key geopolitical player. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. It was a strategic mistake on Washington's part to neglect Africa in recent years. This allowed rivals like China and Russia to steadily deepen their ties with the continent. During the summit, the U.S. seized the opportunity to regain some ground. The investments promised by Washington and the support for the AU joining the G20 are significant and long overdue steps in the right direction. Global Times gives us an establishment critical narrative. Though Washington pretends that it wants to close the growing trust gap between the U.S. and Africa, the Biden administration still sees Africa merely as a pawn in its strategic goal of competing with China and Russia. However, African leaders have long known that U.S. isn't concerned with cooperation for mutual benefit. Africa is unlikely to actually benefit from the summit in a meaningful way. A Southern California county considers seceding from the state. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the week. Fox News, ABC News, PBS NewsHour, and Al Jazeera. San Bernardino County, California's fifth largest county with 2.2 million people, has approved an advisory ballot proposal allowing local officials to inquire into the possibility of seceding from the state. As this would be an attempt to form a new state, the first since Hawaii in 1959, the ballot measure directed officials to look into the legalities of such a move. If pursued, secession would need to be approved by both the state legislature and Congress. Though secession is likely to be a long shot, the vote is significant given the racial and ethnic diversity of the county and points to division as residents face growing homelessness, rising crime and housing prices, and some of the highest taxes in the country. As of 2019, its unemployment rate was 9.5%, and its poverty rate was 12.2%. The city of San Bernardino, with a population of roughly 220,000, is the third largest metro area behind Los Angeles and San Francisco. Its other communities include suburbs, mountain towns, and deserts. The county's Democrat voters also outweigh Republicans by 12 percent, though Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom lost in the county by five points in November's election. Newsom's state is also shrinking in population, with California set to lose a congressional seat next year. Over the course of its 172-year history, California has undergone more than 220 failed attempts to divide the state into multiple smaller ones, including efforts to carve out a new state of Jefferson from nearly two dozen Northern California counties. Scott, thank you for the facts from that interesting story. We have a few spins to talk about, beginning with the Republican narrative coming from USSA News. Though state divorce may sound extreme, the right to consider it is fundamental to American principles. 
Anyone who's traveled to upstate New York, western Maryland, or the rural parts of any state knows how disparate these regions are from the liberal urban hubs that control their legislatures. San Bernardino is no different. Not only should it secede, but so should many other regions if we hope to have a fair national electorate. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Los Angeles Times. The idea of dividing California into multiple states, often proposed by aggrieved Republicans, is nothing new, and neither is its abysmal chance of succeeding. The irony is further displayed in that if another state were to be created, it would lead to a larger federal budget, the opposite of what Republicans argue for day in and day out. Turning our attention to Denmark, the government is set to scrap a public holiday to boost its defense budget. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, RT, Telegraph, Reuters, Financial Times, and Politico. Denmark's new coalition government, which was unveiled on Thursday, has announced that one of the country's 11 public holidays, the Great Prayer Day, will be dropped in order to boost productivity and economic activity. The holiday, known as Storbilide in Danish, falls on the Friday before the fourth Sunday after Easter and has been celebrated by the Danes since 1686. The date has traditionally been a popular day for confirmation ceremonies. The news comes as Copenhagen seeks to meet NATO's target of spending 2% of the GDP on defense, with Prime Minister Meet Frederiksen pointing to the Ukraine war to explain the country's need to strengthen its defenses. The decision to scrap the holiday has drawn criticism from business and church leaders. Meanwhile, the coalition government has announced further plans to boost productivity amid rising energy prices and the highest inflation seen in four decades. The planned measures include over $700 million in tax cuts and an overhaul of the country's welfare model. Prime Minister Fredriksen was forced to call early elections following her handling of the culling of all of Denmark's 17 million minks. But she was able to remain in power by proposing a centrist coalition to address the Ukraine war and the twin energy and cost of living crisis. The three-party coalition, which has broken the traditional left-right divide for the first time in more than four decades, comprises Fredrickson's Social Democrats, the Liberals, and the Moderates. It accounts for a combined 89 seats in the 179-seat parliament following November's elections. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from The Local. This decision has been rightly criticized by both sides of the political spectrum, making Danes cover the cost of tax cuts for companies and the rich with their well-earned and traditionally significant holidays unjust. It also interferes with the long-standing plans of many young people who attend to attend Church of Denmark confirmation ceremonies around the Great Prayer Day. Associated Press gives us a pro-establishment narrative. As Denmark braces for uncertain geopolitical and economic times, harsh measures must be taken. The centrist coalition is planning to get rid of this popular one-day public holiday in 2024 with the aim of boosting finances so that the country has a chance of meeting NATO's military spending target by 2030. It is not only ordinary Danes paying for this difficult situation, the coalition is also advancing a plan to impose tax hikes on the upper class. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's an 81% chance that the Social Democrats will hold a position in government after the next Danish general election. Our final story, a new study says that U.S. Parkinson's disease prevalence is 50% higher than prior estimates. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Reuters, MedPage Today, The X Bulletin, and Fox 59 Indianapolis. 
According to a study published on Thursday, Parkinson's disease annually strikes nearly 90,000 Americans aged 65 and over, about 30,000 more than earlier estimates. At all ages, the incidence was higher in men than in women, the study found. U.S. studies conducted in the mid-1980s estimated nearly 60,000 people are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease each year. In 2020, the estimates grew closer to 86,000. Documenting the rising incidence rates can aid advocacy groups to invest in more research toward better treatments, a cure, and prevention, claim researchers. The findings may help shed light on Parkinson's hotspots, where more resources may be needed to provide adequate health care services. The researchers suggested an aging U.S. population greatly influences these numbers. This year's estimate may be paradoxically higher due to lower smoking rates, as well as increased risks from environmental toxins and better awareness of Parkinson's symptoms. A 2018 prevalence study estimated that approximately 1 million U.S. residents had Parkinson's disease in 2020. According to the Census Bureau population projections, the number is expected to reach over 1.2 million by 2030. Parkinson's disease is the second most common neurodegenerative disorder in the U.S. after Alzheimer's. The public health and economic cost of Parkinson's disease have increased by about $52 billion per year in the U.S. alone. Those were the facts as we take a look at the spins, beginning with Narrative A, coming from WebMD. The findings that Parkinson's rates are higher in the Rust Belt states of the U.S. suggest a link between exposure to environmental toxins, such as pesticides and heavy metals, and an increased risk. We must look into the impact of industrialization on Parkinson's risk to explain why some people with genetic risk factors for the disease get it in some geographic regions while others don't. And the New York Times takes us home with Narrative B. Environmental factors are important to explore, but there's a clear causal link between rising economic debt and critical illnesses like cancer, heart disease, and lung disease. Parkinson's is a costly disease for patients and their caregivers to treat. Broader research and state intervention are needed on the correlation between this debilitating disease and economic stress. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 17th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.